Good morning, everybody. My name is Sherry, and I introduce myself as a grateful alcoholic. I just want to thank the committee, and uh, there's so much work that goes into all of these things. I had uh, Richard come and pick me up at the airport yesterday, or sorry, on Thursday, and I'm guessing he must have prayed for a lesson of patience and tolerance because it took him three and a half hours to get to the airport when apparently it's usually only an hour. So uh, very grateful to be here, and uh, I thank you so much to the committee for asking me. So I just want to start off my talk um, with a joke, of course, because there's fundamental differences between Al-Anons and alcoholics. Love Pauline, but we're going to be a little different in our stories. So uh, I just got divorced. That's what I did um, (laughs) when I married an alcoholic. So there's fundamental differences. We just don't hang in that long. What can I tell you? Uh, But... You know, I was sitting there, and, and uh, there was an alcoholic and an Al-Anon, and, and, you know, they were both in the program. They both had good sponsors, and their sponsors said, you know what, you two need to really talk about the fundamental issues in a relationship before you decide to get together. So the alcoholic says to the Al-Anon, how often do you like to have sex? And the Al-Anon says, infrequently, and the alcoholic said, is that one word or two? <laughs> I assure you, I am alcoholic. (laughs) Another story I'd like to tell is, uh, just to qualify to be your speaker, is when when I was drinking, I remember my box of wine had burst in the fridge when I got home from work one night. Yeah, the alcoholics just shed a tear, you can see that, right? So I was really upset about this, and, uh, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to... In Ontario, we have something called the Liquor Control Board, and they try to control our liquor, but it doesn't work out too well for a lot of us. And uh, I remember I've got a resentment because my box of wine has burst in the refrigerator. This is tragic. However, this alcoholic was smart enough to buy one of those fridges that have spill-proof shelves, so it's all still there, right? Good news, good news. Okay. So, fundamental differences between an alcoholic and an Al-Anon, I'm going to have a little audience participation. So, the Al-Anons, what do they do? We know what Pauline did, right? She went, she got a cloth, she wiped that fridge perfectly spotless and clean. What did the alcoholics do? Thank you, you all just qualified to be in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So picture this alcoholic. I'm dressed much the way I am now. I was very, uh, I was in dentistry at the time, managing offices. So I'm wearing, you know, very professional clothes. And I come in and I assess the situation thoroughly. I get my straw, yes, and I start off on the top shelf. And I keep moving down, moving down, moving down. By the time I got to the bottom, it was a better day, right? Right. Absolutely. Laughter is identification, so if you're laughing, that means you've either thought about this or you've already done this before. So the last qualification I have just took place only a few weeks ago because I want you to know that my keen alcoholic mind still works in the same way. I have some guests over, and they're these nauseatingly disgusting social drinkers that actually have one or two and just leave it there. And, uh, you know, so I served them, them beer, and they had brought their own beer. So, of course, the first thing I do is I start to look at the beer cans to see how much alcohol there is in the beer, right? Because I want to find the one that's got the most in it, because that one's mine. So, of course, I'm passing out the beer, and then they have a couple, and then, can you believe this? They asked me for a coffee. Now, what's this alcoholic's first thought? Ah, it's going to kill the buzz, Right. Guarantee Pauline was not thinking like that. Absolutely, right? So that qualifies me to be your speaker. So I'm very, very grateful to be here. 
I always start my talk off the same way. The biggest mind-altering substance is the truth. And the truth is that I am an alcoholic. The truth is that I suffer from a threefold illness. I suffer from an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind, and a spirit that is malaligned to life on life's terms. Let's talk about the allergy piece. I love water. You will not find me locked in a room by myself drinking an entire case of it. However, give me beer, vodka, or any other alcoholic substance, and that's what I will do. I will drink until I pass out or blackout. That is my story. Knowing it since I was 13 years old, my first drink was a Purple Jesus. If anybody knows what a Purple Jesus is, there's always one guy that's nodding. Thank you. A Purple Jesus is overproof alcohol and grape Kool-Aid. And I assure you that when it comes flying out your nose at breakneck speeds and you are left covered in purple vomit in the park by your great friends at the time, chances are you will not grow up to be a social drinker. That is my experience with alcohol. So again, allergy means that I have an abnormal reaction, right? And that's been my relationship with alcohol. I have had an abnormal reaction to alcohol ever since this stuff touched my lips. I just loved alcohol. It just wrapped itself around every one of my raw nerve endings, and it gave me a sense of ease and comfort that is indescribable unless you are an alcoholic. That's what alcohol does for me. Let's talk about the obsession. Obsession means a preoccupation with unreasonable thoughts or feelings. Don't you love that? Pauline can relate to obsession a little bit. (laughs) That's what alcohol does for me. I obsess. If I'm not drinking it, I'm thinking about drinking it. That has been my experience again since this stuff touched my lips. The part I didn't understand, the part that really baffled me, was that I have a spirit malaligned to life on life's terms. I was an alcoholic, in my opinion, long before I picked up a drink. Uh, This stuff, again, it cures what ails me. This stuff will temporarily cure my emotional displacement. That's what alcohol does for me. So I've got a spirit that's malaligned to life on life's terms. I've got a good friend of mine in the program, and he describes it, and he says it perfectly. Therefore, my disease is spiritual in nature, not liquid. But when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought that my disease was liquid in nature. I thought if I just put down the alcohol, then everything is going to be fine. But that's not what happens with this alcoholic, and that's the difference between a problem drinker and an alcoholic. When the problem drinker puts down the alcohol, his problem goes away. But with this alcoholic, that's when my problem just starts. And separated from alcohol, my big book calls it, I am restless, irritable, and discontented. And how does that manifest in me? I'm full of anxiety, I'm always angry, and I'm constantly depressed. That is how alcoholism shows up on me. So the unmanageability piece, when I first walked in here, I couldn't quite figure out. It says, I'm powerless over alcohol, dash, and my life has become unmanageable. But when I first came into the room, you know, to the rooms, I didn't understand what that piece meant. And Tim talked about it last night. He was saying, let's look at what bottom is. Bottom is when I can't see myself with alcohol and I can't see myself without But when I first came in here, I almost rationalized my way right out of the rooms because I started comparing my bottom to your bottom. And I was a very functional alcoholic. I still held a job. I still had my child, my car, my career. None of those things had affected me. 
But what it is is the internal unmanageability that I feel when I'm separated from alcohol. And again, I'm always angry, I'm constantly depressed, and I'm full of anxiety. That's my state separated from alcohol. So again, alcohol isn't my problem. Alcohol is my solution to that problem. So the story I'm about to tell you is about my childhood. Again, doesn't make me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is that when I start, I can't stop. And when I stop, I can't stop starting again. That's it. That's all. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous will ask you one question. When you drink, do you break out into craving? That is what makes me an alcoholic. My childhood does not. However, I do believe that my childhood defined me. I do believe that there were a few pivotal moments in my life that changed the slate of who I was to become. And I do believe I drank a lot of alcohol over these resentments that I had. So I'm going to share my childhood. I share it quite candidly. I share it the way that I remember it as a child. I did grow up in an alcoholic home. Uh, It wasn't uncommon for me to come home and find my dad passed out in a plate of food. Um, That's just the way that I grew up. wasn't uncommon. Mom and dad would, you know, have discussions, quote, and, uh, you know, therefore a pan would fly across the kitchen, and my dad would say, we're just having a discussion. Uh, Once in a while, I I talk about potato pancake night. Well, that was an interesting night. Mom didn't like that one because dad would get completely drunk and try and make potato pancakes, And even as a young girl, I remember that this recipe probably wasn't the best idea. He'd throw the potatoes into the blender, and then he'd use a wooden spoon to push them down. And I remember he'd pull out the wooden spoon, and, you know, a good chunk of it would be missing. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's why Daddy's so angry, because he's eating wood chips. (laughs) Mom would be very upset, because there would be stuff stuck on the ceiling, so she had to try and go up there and clean it. Uh, Again, that's just the way that I grew up. And I remember one night, or one Christmas, because alcoholics, you know, usually don't have great, great Christmases, although some have, but it wasn't my experience. And I remember one Christmas, my mom thought, you know what, let's wait until my dad, um, you know, passes out so that we can open up our presents. Two days later, (laughs) we decided to open up our gifts. This is a true story. And, uh, you know, but picture the rest of the world, right? So the rest of the world is going on on Christmas Day, but nothing's happening for me because I'm still waiting. So two days later when I open my presents, that's when I figure out what I got for Christmas. But in between those two days, I have a lot of my little friends come up to me and they said, so what'd you get for Christmas? So I learned to lie at a very early age to cover up the shame that surrounded my alcoholic home. And the two biggest lies that I told myself... I'm fine, and I don't care. Those were the two biggest lies that I told myself. And I'm a girl in my adult years. I always say I was held together by tape, glue, and a smile. Nails, perfect. Hair, perfect. Makeup, perfect. Internal unmanageability, not doing so well. Again, so when alcohol hits my lips at the age of 13, it is my magic cure. So growing up in that alcoholic home, I again tell this story very candidly, and I tell it the way that I remember it as a child growing up. We went out for dinner one night, and uh, I always wanted to bring my little doll, and my little doll's name was Sweet Connie. And Sweet Connie came everywhere with me. She was my protector. She's who I held on to uh, when I was afraid of my dad, and she just came everywhere. And my parents had this huge fight in the car whether or not I could bring the doll into the restaurant wasn't too often that that mom won these fights, but in that particular evening, mom won, and I got to bring the doll into the restaurant. 
So the more that my dad drank, the more restless, irritable, and discontented he became, the louder he became, and I just remember him being very upset that I had brought the doll in the restaurant. Um, I think he was upset because he was embarrassed that this little girl of his needed this doll to hang on to, and uh, again, he was selfish, self-centered, he made it all about him. So we had this huge, huge fight in the restaurant, and I just remember getting into the car, and that night I was dropped off at an aunt and uncle's house that I barely even knew. So all of a sudden, I have no mom, no dad, and no explanation. And even at that age, this was in grade two, I was self-centered, and I made it all about me, and I just remember sitting in a very dark room in a rollaway bed, and my first thought was, if only I hadn't brought this doll into the restaurant, none of this would have happened. Well, of course, later on in my adult years, I was to learn that my dad's alcoholism had driven my mother into what was then called the complete nervous breakdown. She wasn't capable of being my mom. She was down to 83 pounds. She was hospitalized. And uh, it's not that she didn't want to be my mom. She just wasn't capable. Of course, alcoholism separates children and families because that's what it does. And I remember my dad saying, you can put those kids in children's aid. But, of course, that wasn't meant to be. I'm grateful today to that aunt and uncle, but I wasn't when I first walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because later on that uncle ended up molesting me. And that was a pivotal moment that wrote on the slate of who I, could, who I became. And what that experience did is that experience made me feel dirty in places that soap doesn't reach. And we're talking at that time, we don't talk, we don't tell. There's no kid's help phone. There's no one for me to turn to. There's no Oprah on the television set for me to get some information. I just know that I have had an experience that makes me feel dirty inside, and I have no one to talk to about it. So I believe the time frame was probably about a year or so that I was at that aunt and uncle's, and uh, I think my mom at that time, she was trying to leave my dad, but she wasn't capable of doing it. So she put the family back together, which is what she did. She did the best that she could. And uh, so all of a sudden, I start off in a suburban home. I get yanked out of everything I know. I have this experience. I'm put into an inner city school. No friends. I'm absolutely terrified. And then, I'm sp- then we come back, and I'm back to the same home. Again, don't talk, don't tell. So you can really see where tape glue and a smile comes from and where that false lie came from that I kept telling the world that I was fine. But meanwhile, I haven't told anybody this secret that I have. And I carry this secret with, a- with me for decades. And I always say to people, we are as sick as our secrets. Everybody in AA knows it. And that was a secret that that took me a long, long time to be able to share with anybody. So again, I go back to, back to that school again, and my little friends are asking me, you know, where were you? What happened to you for a year? Again, there's tape glue and a smile. I'm fine. Everything's good. It's all fine. So when I go into high school, I'm a very angry girl. And uh, my high school yearbook read something like this. Ambition to be president of Molson's. Now, that's the brewery up in Canada. That would be the equivalent to Coors down here. So ambition to be president of Molson's. Destination, drowning in my work. Yeah. My hero was Black Sabbath, and my asset was Brian. So I don't know if you guys see any codependency issues coming along here, but there's going to be a lot of those in my life. Again, and I'm not the kind of person that sticks it out the way Pauline did. No way. So I have a series of hostages that I take on. Because, again, once Sherry fixes, you know, once I get the 2.5 kids, the white picket fence, the house, the car, and the career, 
Sherry's going to be fine. And Sherry got all of those things. But again, Sherry's still dying of untreated alcoholism, and she has no idea what she's dying from. So I always nickname my hostages to protect the innocent. So um, I'm going to take you through a series of hostage-taking, and uh, I'm sure by the end of this, Pauline will just be reeling from that experience because, yeah, <laughs> there were a few of them. Let's, what can I tell you? So the first hostage is the alcoholic, right? Because that's, you know, I love to marry alcoholics, right? I, you know, they were familiar to me. And I work with a lot of newcomers. And whenever I work with a newcomer, I say, why don't you design your want ad for what your spouse should look like? So this is a want ad for my first husband. Alcoholic, check. Narcissistic, check. Treats me like dad, check. Oh, and good-looking. He had to be good-looking because Sherry's plan involves children, so I'm going to procreate with them, don't you know? So I want to make sure that he's good-looking so that I can produce wonderful offspring. I do assure you that part of my plan worked out, and I have a very healthy, happy daughter who has more letters after her name than the alphabet, and I'm very, very grateful that she shows no signs of this disease despite her two alcoholic parents. So if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. Uh, so the second hostage, now you got to remember that I don't have logic in relationships, I have alkalogic. Now there is a big difference. So again, if you are laughing, if you are identifying, and if you are nodding, chances are you are in the right place. So realize when I married this man that I had to be absolutely hammered to walk down the aisle. True story, I was stuck in the bathroom stall. I'm 20 minutes late for my own wedding because I'm stuck in the wedding dress and nobody came to rescue me. I can't get out of the stall. I kind of stumble down the aisle. And I remember my thought. I can literally remember the thought walking down the aisle. And I thought, you know what? If this doesn't work out, I can always get a divorce. Apparently not Pauline's thought. So I stumbled down the aisle, I uh, blacked out a lot of the wedding, I remember waking up the next day thinking maybe I didn't really sign the papers, apparently I did, and uh, I was to stay in that relationship for 17 years. And uh, I really did try. We tried everything that we could. I mean, we sought marital counseling, everything. I even remember going to his mother. See, there is a little Alan on in me. And I thought, okay, well, why can't you fix him? Like, you know, you had him first. Uh, but that didn't seem to work out. So I did try everything I could. And I thought, you know what, it's just time to let it go. So... Uh, we end up, uh, you know, getting divorced, and I thought, okay, fine. It's got to be the men that I'm picking. Can't possibly be me. It has to be them. And once I get the right guy, then Sherry's going to be okay. So follow this alkalogic. Won't make sense at first, but it will after a brief explanation from me. So I figure, you know what, I'm going to trade up. So I trade up to the pot smoker. Okay. He's more mellow, and he doesn't steal my booze. Right? Ah, now you see my plan working, right? This is a great plan, great plan. So that's what I do, and of course that doesn't work out with him either. So I thought, okay, well, I, you know what? I just have a lot of bad luck when it comes to men. I think, you know, let's, let's keep going. So the third hostage that I take on, because I figure, you know what? I've dated the alcoholic. I've dated the drug addict. Maybe I should go for somebody a little more straight-laced, someone that's going to keep me in line, right? I need a designated driver. So then I decide, you know what? I'm going to go for jump how high guy. Now, this guy would have done absolutely anything for me. So I hope to God you Al-Anon scooped him up because this guy put this alcoholic on a pedestal. And when you put an alcoholic on a pedestal, she falls off very quickly. And my disease really started to take off at that point. 
And I thought, okay, this just isn't working out either. So I know you're all going to be shocked, but I was addicted to online dating. Yeah, I know, right? Just want to let you in on a little secret. Step six is step one in every other area of your life. So if I don't start looking at the toxicity of my relationships, I'm going back to my first love, and my first love is alcohol. So that's what I needed to look at. However, I still needed to take on a few more hostages before I do that. So there were a few, I don't even know your name, guys. I know, I know, it's shocking, right? Shocking, shocking. So when I went through my amends list, I thought, you know what, no amends necessary, so what can I tell you? I'm a French-Canadian girl with people-pleasing issues, so the only time Sherry has any trouble in a relationship is when she's vertical. (laughs) I don't think I needed to make any amends to them. I think they were doing just fine. So then there was, let's see, oh, the next one. Yes, it's possible for this alcoholic to fall in love by email. So I entitled the next one, Does Not Even Live in the Country Guy. So follow this alcologic. He'd moved all the way to Australia. He was the one that got away. Can you imagine that? Got away from me. Shocking. And uh, so he was the one I thought, you know what? This, this must be a real relationship because we're getting to know each other, right, by email. So we're not having sex, so this has to be real. So that was my logic, and I drag him all the way back from Australia. He was here on a three-week vacation uh, to see how things were going to go, and I think you know how that ends. I ended up sending him all the way back to Australia again because that's the kind of selfish and self-centered things that I do. You have to realize, though, since doing the... 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I know that what I was doing was selfish and self-centered, but at that time, I would have swore up and down, if you hooked me to a lie detector, that I was in love with every single one of those men. But I don't know what love is because I'm too selfish and self-centered, so I need to do the core work to be able to figure that out. So the last, oh, where were we? Oh, yes, okay, I've got so many of them, I just can't keep track. Maybe you can help me out, pen and paper, write them down. Um, so, yes, let's see. Oh, yes, this was, this was the one. When I'm, like, 105 years old, sitting in a corner drooling somewhere, and a little smirk comes across my face, it'll be this one. 23 years, you're junior guy. Yeah, I know. I heard someone let out an oh, God, there. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe you've had that experience. Anyway, that was the ultimate in ego boosting for me. So, uh, But again, no harm's done there. So uh, we knew it, it was what it was, but it, was, it will be a little smirk that I'm sure I'll keep uh, in, my, in my years to come. Uh, so the next one was the workaholic. And his workaholic clashed with my alcoholic. And that's the one that really brought me to my knees and got me to look at these relationships. And my sponsor was wonderful, because when you first walk into the rooms of AA, I'm kind of guessing that it's the same in the States as it is in Canada. You have these wonderful people called sponsors, and sponsors look at you, and they point at you, and they go, no relationships for at least a year. Mine looked at me, and she went, and for you, five. I was a little hurt by that because I'm underloved and overly sensitive. So when sponsors were giving me direction I didn't like, it hurt. However, I will assure you that I did follow that direction. So I've been happily single for the last six years, and I think a lot of men in the program are really grateful for that. (laughs) I know that... uh, 
I travel down here with, uh, with my best friend. My best friend is sitting here in the front row, and his name is Eric. And just because we travel together and go to meetings together in Alcoholics Anonymous, that means we are together. Uh, that's what everybody thinks because, you know, if you get out of a car being seen together, you must be together. Uh, we're often blessed to be able to speak together, and uh, the last time we spoke, uh, you know, there's a lot of rumors that, that go on around about us, and uh, we're just truly, truly the best of friends and, and good friends. And I always thought, you know what, who starts these rumors? And then I found out that it was him. <laughs> We'd appreciate if you could keep them going down here, if you wouldn't mind. So, And uh, those are the gifts you get from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so glad that I have a sense of humor. So I'm going to tell you the true story of the only reason that I came back to my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, this is a true story. Yes, this is the honesty that I share from the podium. So picture me in the back of the room of Alcoholics Anonymous for my first meeting. I'm dressed in black because I'm already in mourning because I know you guys are lying to me saying, you know, we just don't drink one day at a time. I know that means for life. But I sit there and I come in and I thought, you know what, I have no higher power. And you guys mentioned that word. You mentioned the word God. And I got one foot out the door because where was God when I was a child? Where was God in my life when my dad and my uncle were doing those things to me? Where was God? There is no God. So you mentioned that word and I thought, okay, that's nice for you guys, not for me. I am out of here. Until I felt a hand. And this hand gently placed itself on my shoulder. And there was a guy, and he said, take what you need and leave the rest. And I remember looking over my right-hand shoulder, and I went, I'll take you. (laughs) He was the good-looking fireman from my group, and he became my new higher power. Absolutely. And he said such wonderful lines to me, and I fell for them. And I just want to let everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous know the biggest pickup line there is in AA. I love what you shared. Yeah. I fell for that line. Here I am, one day sober. He loved what I shared. Excellent. I'm new. I have nothing worth sharing, but that's me, my new higher power. So that is the true story of why I came back to my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And God works in mysterious ways, and God certainly uses my, de- my character defects to get me to my next meeting, and I'm very, very grateful that he did. But picture me, my new higher power is over. He's down two rows to the left, three to the right, and back. I know what he's wearing. He smells real good, and he loved what I shared. So here's me with my keen alcoholic mind. It did get me to read the big book very thoroughly, because I thought I can't look like a fool when I'm sharing if he loved what I shared. So I'm reading the big book for the next few meetings, and I'm coming back, and I'm sharing brilliantly, I might add. Uh, I can quote the big book, have no idea what I'm saying, but I quote the big book very well when, uh, you know, when he's in the room. And so if you're sitting there right now, oh, yes, i got to tell you the ending, of course. Yeah, he didn't want to leave his girlfriend for me. Oh, I know. It's tragic, right? Tragic. The al are just really crying about that, right? Almost had myself another alcoholic there. But again, God, I always say just because things aren't going your way doesn't mean that they're not the way that they're supposed to be going. So if you're new here and somebody is giving you advice like that, somebody usually named a sponsor, listen to them. Because I guarantee that if I had gotten together with that man, 
I wouldn't be standing here because those are the things that I drank over. I drank over the toxic relationships in my life. I drank over the things when they didn't fit into Sherry's plan. Those are the things that would kill me. So I needed to get down to causes and conditions. Remember the two biggest lies I told myself? I'm fine and I don't care. The first thing I would have told you is that childhood stuff doesn't matter. That happened a long time ago. But again, I need to get down to the cause and condition because I'm sitting there putting myself into relationships that are completely toxic because I attract on the outside what I feel like on the inside. And that was the story and that was the pattern. And I had a beautiful sponsor and she looked at me and she said, what is the common denomination to all of your failed relationships? Of course, being a true alcoholic, I said them. She said, you, it was a completely different version of the truth that I had going on. So again, I need to look at these things because I was the common denominator to all of those failed relationships because that's my alcoholic version of the geographical cure, right? It was men. It wasn't location. I thought once I get the right guy, the 2.5 kids, the white picket fence, then I'm going to be okay. But again, I'm dying of untreated alcoholism and I don't know what's going on. Emotions are the things that we have the most of and we know the least about. And I can take emotions and I can parallel them to alcohol quite easily. Rage is like a blackout drunk. Anger is simply getting drunk. And resentment is the hangover. I had resentments or emotional hangovers for decades that I would have said, I don't care and I'm fine. So that's the cause and condition that I needed to get down to. Spiritually unfit people are incapable of forgiveness. And that was me. I couldn't forgive. Forgiveness is giving up the hope that my past could have been any different. Forgiveness doesn't mean what was done to me was okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I'm ever going to forget. Forgiveness means that I love myself more than I hate what he did to me. And I remember the day that I got free... And that's why I ask people here, how free do you want to be? Who are you holding on to a resentment for? Who aren't you forgiving? And that changed my life. That was the second I got free. Because I thought if I forgave him, that that meant what he did to me was okay. Resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Well, I'm drinking the poison and those two men were not even on the planet anymore. And when I really got down to causes and conditions, I realized that I needed to let go. And we talk about letting go all the time. First thing we need to let go of, alcohol. The second thing we need to let go of is our old belief system. And I need to challenge that old belief system. The first one I needed to challenge was the concept that I had about God. I had a concept where it was some guy up there with a beard and a staff in his hand, and he looked down and he went, I don't like her. I destined her to have a crappy life. That is the way that I saw how God was working in my life. These 12 steps are not here to tell you what to believe. They're here to show you how to believe. And I went from no God to believing there could be to now knowing that there is. That's how powerful these 12 steps are if you allow them to work in your life. So again, I had a lot of resentment, and resentment is like ice around my heart, and I call that hatred. I'm full of hatred, and I'm projecting all of that hatred into my current relationships. And what is spirituality? Spirituality is learning to live in the current moment and now. But where did I live? I lived in the past, and I lived in the future. 
Anxiety is worrying about the future. Depression is living in the past. I was anywhere but now, and if I did snap back into the moment, I was angry. Those are my states. Again, I'm an angry drunk. But separated from alcohol, I'm quite a bubbly woman. <laughs> I needed to get down to the causes and conditions, and I needed to sit there and tell myself that I wasn't dirty in places, that soap didn't reach, that I deserved what other people deserved in this life, and that I deserved to be happy, and that was, that was work. And I'm an alcoholic of, I remember when I came in here, they said, an alcoholic of your type. And I got that a little bit mixed up because I thought an alcoholic of that type was somebody that was a daily drinker. That wasn't my experience. I was a blackout binger. It was getting to be daily by the end, but I knew enough to get in here very quickly. But an alcoholic of my type means I'm hopeless beyond human aid, right? If I can't stay sober for the daughter that I love more than life itself, human aid. If I can't stay sober at the treatment center, human aid. If I can't stay sober just hanging around the fellowship, love you guys, but you're still human aid. In my experience, the only thing that can keep me sober is a power greater than myself. And I think we need to define what myself is. Myself is my personality. I need something bigger than my personality to keep me sober. And I don't know about you guys, but you might have gathered, I got a pretty big personality, so I need something really big to keep me sober. Again, I don't get a spiritual awakening as a result of attendance. I get a spiritual awakening as a result of doing the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is what brought me to a loving God. That is what brought me to a place of forgiveness. And I am so, so grateful for that. So again, when I look back at my past, I can look at it with forgiveness. But what I was doing is I was projecting all of that hate into my current relationships. And I knew spirituality was something about bringing you into the current moment and now, because anything I drank said spirits right on the bottle. <laughs> and what does alcohol do for me? Brings me into the current moment and now. All of a sudden, I don't care about the guy I broke up with yesterday. I don't care about the bills I have to pay tomorrow. I am right here, right now. And again, that's because I break into craving when I drink it. But you look at those social drinkers, you know, the crazy ones, they sit there and they drink like a glass of wine and they leave half of it sitting on the table. I just kind of thought that was for me, so I was very courteous and finished it off for you folks. <laughs> Don't want to be abusing alcohol by leaving it behind, right? But those were the causes and conditions that I needed to get down to, and I'm so grateful that I have good sponsorship and my sponsor showed me that if you want the truth, you have to run it through the truth filter. And I don't know about you, but my mind would rationalize and justify its way back to a drink every single time, despite the consequences of a month, a week, or even a day ago. That is what my literature tells us. So I remember looking and I thought, you know what? I need to define powerless. I've got a body that's allergic to alcohol and a mind that told me for 36 years that it wasn't. If that's not powerlessness, I don't know what else is. So I started drinking at the age of 13. Again, I drank for 36 years, and I'll be sober for eight years in February. So if you guys do math the way that I do, that makes me 29. <laughs> so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous for what I've been taught. 
And again, this truth filter, I say to you, if you want to know if something's the truth, ask yourself these questions. Do I rationalize? Do I justify? Do I deny? Do I minimize? Do I maximize? And my last one, do I catastrophize? Because I don't know about you alcoholics, but I'm the type of alcoholic that can take a hangnail and I will turn it into a brain tumor in 2.3 things. (laughs) That is the way that this keen alcoholic mind thinks. So... I have a lot of sponsees, and I'm so blessed and so grateful to them. And uh, there was a great speaker that I'd heard at the ORC in, in Canada quite some time ago, and she said that she likes to take red flags and paint them green. And that is what I would do in my relationships. I would rationalize. So in my relationships, my you know, from the first relationship to the second relationship, I went, oh, well, at least he doesn't hit me. At least he doesn't call me names. That was the kind of rationale that I had to move on. Now, again, I'm a girl that would accept the unacceptable at that time in her life, but that happens no more. And if I have to give up 100% of me to be in 50% of a relationship, the cost is too high. So, again, I needed to look at those things, and I needed to become emotionally balanced. And isn't that what emotional sobriety is all about? I did not get into this deal to just not drink. I got into this deal to be happy. And we've all talked about it. I'm the girl that's less than, right? So I'm either grandiose or comatose, as one of my favorite speakers said. And again, that's me, right? I'm out there, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the highs, and I'm still chasing them, right? So I have to be careful because I'm an addict. So you might have gathered I have one too many bracelets, but, you know, my sponsor says that's acceptable. But I have shopping issues. I have all kinds of issues that I really need to keep in check. Again, keep in mind, step six, step one, in every other area of your life. So those are the things that we need to look at. And sometimes that work is scary. There's only two emotions, love and fear. And when I live in the lower emotions, that's where fear lives. Fear lives in resentment. If you were to take resentment, pour it into a funnel, out the bottom comes fear. And that's what I was. I was constantly full of fear. But if you had asked me if I was afraid of anything, I would have denied it. Denial, one of my favorite tools. So it's about running these things through the truth filter and getting your sponsor to sit there and take the red flags that you're painting green and to show them to you and to shine the light on what you're doing. Sponsors love you enough to tell you the truth. And again, just because life isn't going your way doesn't mean that it's not the way that it's supposed to be going. So I need to talk a little bit about the higher power that I choose now to call God, and you are talking about the girl that couldn't choke the word out when she came. God did not change the circumstance. God changed the person. God changed me. God changed my attitude and my outlook. And isn't that what the serenity prayer means? I remember I was here for probably about a year, watching the firemen, of course, but uh, I thought I knew what the serenity prayer meant, right? God grant me the serenity to... uh, except the things I cannot change, people, places, things, my past, how others behave, the courage to change the things I can, my attitude, my outlook, my responses. And these 12 steps gave me the wisdom to know that difference. And I work a program in my life today that I consider quite solid, but I'm certainly far from perfect. But it's when I bring God into these situations that the best work is done. So I'm going to tell you a little story. I know you're going to be shocked to hear this, but in about year two, I thought, you know what? The fireman didn't work out. 
maybe it's about time, God, just maybe, just maybe that you bring me a man. So I've got a God box in, in, in my room that I place my prayers in, so I'm trying to manipulate that prayer a little bit by saying, well, you know what, I won't put any specifications. I'll just, you know, say here, go ahead, bring me one, right? I was taught don't pray for specifics, and I thought, well, my picker's off anyway. So I put this prayer into the God box, and God does answer my prayers, but never in the form that I think it's going to come in, because about a week later I get asked to speak in a male prison. <laughs> God always knew I liked the bad boys. (laughs) So, of course, I'm absolutely petrified to do this talk. And I know you guys don't know me well, but you should know what my first thought is. Yeah, right, what am I going to wear, right? Absolutely. Can't be orange because I might clash with the prisoners. Can't be too tight because they might not let me back out again. And uh, I've got all these crazy thoughts, but I'm very well-sponsored, and I am a suit-up-and-show-up girl, and I was taught, you don't say no in Alcoholics Anonymous. So off I went to prison, and uh, I remember asking the woman there, the woman that brought me in that worked for corrections, and I said, should I censor my talk? Because I say my talk much the way that I say it now, and uh, she said, absolutely not, because there were some men in there that were in there for that offense. And she said, absolutely not. You share your talk the same way that you're sharing it now because you're carrying the message and maybe somebody needs to hear it. So I shared my talk, and I remember there were 60 men in orange jumpsuits, uh, all very respectful, and they all shook my hand on the way out. And I remember sitting there, and I got into the car, and all of a sudden I burst into tears because I knew why God had me there. Because maybe, just maybe, one of those men that were sitting there knew that somebody in their life would be able to come to forgiveness too. Again, God doesn't change circumstance. God made me useful. And I am so grateful, and those are the kinds of things that will happen to you in Alcoholics Anonymous if you let a higher power work in your life and you don't live in the lower emotional states. I know I am in a lower emotional state because I do my spot checks. And how do I do my spot checks? I know that I have left the current moment and now, and follow this one, it was one of the best ones that I ever heard. Resentment is when I didn't get my will met in the past. Anger and depression are when I'm not currently getting my will met. And fear is when I'm afraid I'm not going to get my will met in the future. That's how I know that I am way too far away from my higher power if I'm in one of those states. And I do these spot checks all the time. And I often talk about prayer, and this was a girl that didn't believe in God when she first came in here. And I've worked in a treatment center, and I used to tell my clients, I said, pray with disbelief, but pray, and the belief will come. And that has been my experience. The only people that don't believe in prayer are the people that haven't tried it. And it's like Pauline was saying, my prayers get answered. Oftentimes not in the form that I think they will, but God does work in mysterious ways. And meditation isn't something you do. Meditation is something you stop doing. I need to stop thinking. I don't know about you, but you've heard what goes on in this mind, right? I need to be still. I need to be still to let that power flow in, to get that intuitive thought to come to me. That's been a gift. And you know why prayer works? And I used to try and explain this to newcomers the best way that I could. Because I was taught pray if you have a resentment. Can you imagine me trying to pray for that uncle who, in my opinion, had ruined my life, who I carried a hatred around for decades, but I was taught to pray? And the reason that prayer works is because you cannot hold love and hate in your heart 
at exactly the same moment. You can hold them one after the other, but you can't hold those two energies together at one time. And those were my relationships, right? Love you, hate you, love you, hate you, love you, hate you. That's how my relationships were. But when I stay in that loving state, that's when I can feel the presence of a divine love flow through me. And I am so grateful to the 12 steps for bringing me to a God of my understanding who works in my life in ways that I can't possibly explain. When I first came here, step one looked something like this. I am powerless over alcohol, and my loves have become unmanageable. (laughs) Can you relate to that, Pauline? Yes, Pauline's nodding. (laughs) (laughs) And if only I could fix then, then everything was going to be okay. But I'm the girl that her first addiction was approval-seeking, right? People-pleasing, and that's what I do. And people-pleasing is like being passive-aggressive. People-pleasing resentment. So I'm a people-pleaser, and I'm giving away far more than I can give in these relationships because I need you to love me. And then I'm resentful because you don't behave in the way that I need you to behave. You don't love me the way that I need to be loved. And I needed a love that only a divine and loving higher power could enter. No man was ever going to love me enough until I learned to get that love from the inside. So it's like Tim talked about, this is all internal work. It's not external work. I was diagnosed with PTSD uh, from childhood trauma. Again, what a great label for Sherry to drink over. Again, the psychologist couldn't fix me. Why? Human aid. So I had a lot of knowledge about my childhood. Self-knowledge avails us nothing, right? Knowledge is great, but what I need to do is I need to surrender, And when I see a lot of people walk into this program and they're new, they're beaten but not surrendered. But I knew that I was surrendered. I knew that I didn't want to live that life anymore. And I knew that I needed to find something to be able to deal with my alcoholism. And there was nothing I found greater than a power greater than myself. And that's what these 12 steps did for me. I always end my talk the same way. There are 86,400 seconds in each day. And in each day, I need to give away some of those seconds to purpose. And there's no greater purpose that I have than being in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous has taken me from a bad life to a bad year to a bad week, and now I won't even hand over one bad day to this disease. My purpose is to carry the message, not the mess, to the alcoholic that still suffers. And the message that I have is one of strength and hope and recovery. I urge you, if anybody has had an experience like this, that you don't need to share it from a podium in front of hundreds of people, but you need to find that one trusted person to be able to share it with. You can tell from my childhood I had huge abandonment issues and huge trust issues. I have a sponsor today that I trust with my life. She's there to save my life, not my feelings, and she tells me the truth. She's kind and diplomatic and loving when she does it, but she shares the truth about me because sometimes I can't see it. That is the gift of sponsorship. I have sponsees that I'm able to give that gift to, and they are absolutely incredible people, and we share a warmth and a love that can only be found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, time is the only true currency that we have. The hearse doesn't stop at the bank machine on the way to the funeral. Time is all we have. Tell the people that you love that you love them. Be kind. Be loving. I was a child that grew up being told to be seen and not heard. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a voice, 
You've given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. You've given me a peace and serenity that I couldn't possibly explain to anybody. And I am so grateful for that. The most important thing that my voice will ever say are these are the 12 steps that we all took as a program of recovery. May you all remain reachable, teachable, present, and surrendered. May God bless you, and thank you so much for my sobriety.